Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I really do think that, yes, how we are to one another engages issue of power, of hierarchy, of prominence, of sexuality, of race, of class, all those things that have to be spoken together that can never be separated. Just trying to make rock artistic, you know, and sort of make art out of, you know, guitars and, and drums and bass. Reviews and interviews about the arts with Richard Watts. Richard, with you here, back after a four-week break. Big thanks to Steph and Dan, who filled in for me for the four weeks while I was having a much-needed period of downtime to just switch off and not think about the arts and not think about work. And what did I do? I watched a lot of TV. I... uh, I binge-watched a few things. We're going to be talking about binge-watching shortly, but binge-watching theatre rather than TV. I read a few books. I went for walks. I caught up with friends. It was lovely. I hope you had a good break if you managed to get one. Uh, Alternatively, if you're one of those people who had to work over the Christmas New Year period, I hope you also uh, get some downtime at some appropriate point. Maybe... uh, in about a month when airfares are cheaper and there aren't small children underfoot everywhere you go. Not that I have anything against small children, I just like being able to give them back to their parents uh, so they can be exhausted and I can't. Anyway, hello, it's lovely to be back. Uh, On the show today, uh, what have we got? On the indie theatre front, I'm going to catch up with Jess McAvoy and we're going to talk about their show, The Search, which is on at the Butterfly Club, again, as part of Midsummer. On the dance front, we're going to find out about the work from uh, Northern Irish choreographer Una Doherty called Hope Hunt and the Ascension into Lazarus, which is on at Dance House. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk about an epic work of theatre called The Inheritance on at 45 Downstairs, again, as part of the Midsummer Festival. When I say it's an epic work of theatre, I mean it. It's two plays over seven hours with intervals, and you have the chance to see them on successive nights, or if you're particularly ambitious and game and totally getting into the festival spirit, then you can see both shows back-to-back on the weekends, which, trust me, is a wonderful way to experience theatre. Binge-watching theatre. If you haven't done it before, I highly recommend it. It's the kind of thing that you would only do in a festival. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, if you're a fan of music theatre, musical theatre, rock 
uh, music and more, then you've probably seen a lot of rock musicals over the years. But have you ever seen a solo rock musical? <laughs> um, I am joined in the studio by... Jess McAvoy, who is performing their show The Search at the Butterfly Club as part of Midsummer, And Jess, you have created a one-person rock musical. So I'm told. Yes, indeed. Did you know you were writing a rock musical at the time when you began developing the show? Well, uh, you know, the whole thing came about in kind of a random way. I mean, as you may or may not know, I've been a singer-songwriter for almost 30 years and uh, a friend of mine about six years ago um, said that I should formalise the way that I perform because uh, I tell a lot of stories between my songs. And um, so, yeah, this one-person show was born and it's it's taken a while to kind of get into its current formation. And when we put it up in uh, New York off-Broadway, um, it just kind of made sense because it's not – it's a one-person show, but what does that really tell you? Um, so it really is a it's, – it's a middle ground somewhere between, you know, a theatre piece and, and what I've done normally, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of – yeah, it's rock, it's, it's folk, it's, it's, it's just it's a work about my life. Now, you well, grew up in Perth and are now based in the US. That's right. What was, the, what was behind the decision to move to the States? Well, I was in Melbourne for 13 years, so, um, and it, uh, you know, I kind of felt like I hit a ceiling uh, towards the end there and um, kind of wasn't getting what I wanted out of, out of the industry at the time. I think my attitude needed some shifting. And <laughs> so I... Uh, yeah, and I don't know. New York was always the the, the goal, um, sort of in the back of my mind. And so, as I sort of hit a, a place in in Melbourne where I felt like it, it wasn't big enough for me, it just sort of that was where I pointed myself um, to learn a whole bunch of new lessons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Given that you, you just said you weren't getting what you wanted from the industry in, yeah. in Melbourne, what was it that you were wanting or, or or searching for? Well, I think you know I was I I was in a bit of a tough place. I was an alcoholic for thirteen years until eleven years ago. So I think uh, by the tail end of my time here, I I was pretty resentful of of. Um, I, th- I felt like I should be in a different place in terms of notoriety and stuff. And I, you know, I'd come out as, as queer a couple of years before I left and it just, it sort of, it, it really ran a lot of opportunities into the ground. So I think I was pretty resentful of, of m- the fact that I felt like I couldn't really be myself. Um, and that, you know, the, the ceiling was always also there for like feminine people too. And so I just, you know, it just felt like there was more out there for me and, and leaving was the only option at the time. Now, in terms of constructing the show mm-hmm. uh, and the content of it, yep. given everything you've just told us about kind of uh, being a former alcoholic, well, a recovering alcoholic, I guess, is probably the... the so that's what the, they call it, yeah. Yeah, the appropriate terminology, um, uh, and being queer and so forth. Is that part of the the, the, the the through line, the spine of the show? Yeah, totally. I mean, the show's really about finding my voice. And so it, it sort of starts with this idea of having your voice taken as a young, sensitive person um, by, you know, society or, or you know, the people that raise you and such. And um, so it, it's, it's, it is a story about my life and the culmination of all of the, the challenges that led to me seeking um, a different form of expression or, or, or a bigger form of expression in my own work. Uh, so, yeah, quite naturally, uh, a lot of the challenges that I've faced along the way have shown up in the show. Um, alcoholism, mental health struggles, all of that sort of fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, the humour that I, I've needed to get through um, those struggles, yeah. Yeah, it's the classic, if you uh, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Well, yeah, I mean, or you might not survive it, yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about what m- moving to New York gave you as an artist. 
Well, I think first and foremost, it taught me that you can't run away from your problems. They kind of come with you. Um, New York is a really harsh place to live and it really taught me a lot about myself and, uh, yeah, I think, I think America in general, the, the whole, if I can make it there or just, you know, the, the kind of individualism of, of American culture was a really attractive to me, um, coming from a tall poppy syndrome country like Australia to kind of go somewhere where you're celebrated for just getting up and having a go. Um, it was a really great way for me to start accepting myself and accepting, um, my desire to, to make things in front of a lot of people. Um, and then also, you know, just to, in terms of the, the competitive nature in New York and the quality of work that comes out there, it really helped me get to a place where I felt like I'm, I'm making world-class work. Um, and, and putting this show on in New York was no exception. I, I got such amazing feedback, so it felt like a really grand achievement. And you put it on quite recently. It was only, what, September last yeah, year? Yeah, it was September. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we had, like, a, I had a wonderful director by the name of Rachel Dart, um, a choreographer, Olivia, um, and just, yeah, we, we, it was a lot of people that, that brought it together. It was my first foray into theatre. It was a huge learning curve. Uh, huge. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, as part of that learning curve, talk to us about how you structured the show because, as you've said, kind of, you sing and you tell stories on stage between mm-hmm. the songs, mm-hmm. but there's a, a big gulf between that and a theatrical work that will be dramatically engaging, perhaps have a story arc. Totally, yeah. I think ADHD has helped me do that. You know, I think I think <laughs> to have like a real uh, multiplicity of, of angles to tell the story with. I, storytelling, I think, is the core of my uh, interest when it comes to music and art. And uh, yeah, it's a. I had to do a lot of research around um, circular storytelling. Um, rather than sort of linear storytelling because the, each of the characters kind of collaborate with each other throughout the length of the show and so to, to have them kind of come in and take turns to tell the story, uh, the timeline is pretty abstracted. Um, so, yeah, it, I don't know. It just I think that's why it took so long was that it, it, I wanted to include so many different things to tell a story that um, ultimately has a very uh, – um, clear narrative through it um so to do that from that many angles it just it just took a lot of work (laughs) and a lot of research and I think a lot of the people that I was working with um in putting it on were just like how did you why did you what was the why (laughs) so again why it was so satisfying that it actually translated to something that's uh that comes across quite elegantly and quite simply how useful was it to work with a director uh, way more useful than I thought. In fact, all of the people that were involved in the production, I, I didn't understand. Having been an independent musician for so long, it's like you just do everything yourself and if someone else is around to kind of help you out, um, then you're all kind of scrappy together. So to work with people who have worked on Broadway, um, you know, the the scenic designer that I worked with, Ungrat, um, had has worked on Broadway and... You know, so to, to learn from all of those different people that were all had one job each, which I thought was just bizarre. Like, how, how can you just direct? Why are you just stage managing? Like, do six or seven things. So to kind of see the nuances of what everyone could bring to the table, um, yeah, it was a really, really magical thing to kind of see what it's like to work with a lot of people that all have a really specific job to do. Yeah. yeah. And also, I guess, having that external eye to mm-hmm. help kind of sculpt the shape of the show. I mean, you're you're making the show, but having somebody else go, if we actually move this song kind of back, th- kind of like 
20 minutes yeah. kind of, to give it more dramatic heft or something. Also, I think one of, uh, one of the things that I really wouldn't have accounted for was the fact that you only have to say stuff once sometimes. You know, like the nature of story of songwriting is that, you know, you repeat the chorus and you repeat the ideas so that it really gets stuck in people's heads. But, you know, I really – so to really simplify the story and to remove a lot of the superfluous stuff like all my over-explaining that wasn't necessary, um, to have those external um, people was, was really essential, yeah. yeah. And in terms of – of your songwriting itself, mm-hmm. uh, your kind of uh, musical influences and so forth. Again, living in New York, how has your how has that enriched and evolved your songwriting? Oh, so much. I mean. I think New York itself. There's, I always have maintained that one of the reasons why I moved there was because I could I could hear something in the air, in the recordings that I love, like Jeff Buckley, um, Billy Joel, Nina Simone. Look, there's something that's really specific that sits in the air of those recordings, um, and so to be there and to kind of experience that sort of weight and that heft of of folks that have kind of gone through that city. As I said before, you know, it, it's really elevated my desire for sort of quality and, and um, ambition uh, for my work. Um, and also just, you know, I think a lot of the musicians that I've gotten to work with to, to elevate the songs in the musical. I mean, I wrote some of the, the tracks like the day before we went into the studio to record them with uh, this wonderful drummer, Morgan, who um, I've been working with. And just the people that I get access to to elevate my my work, it's just... Yeah, there's just lots of good people with lots of big talent that I get to get access to and that's what's the wonderful thing about New York. So for people who were familiar with your music before you moved to the mm-hmm. States, what will they hear in this show that has evolved or is different to what they used to see you performing? I think I'm a lot more straightforward now. I think I get to the point a lot more easily. When I've gone back and listened to a lot of my old stuff, it's really steeped in metaphor. You know, I started listening to a lot of Tori Amos when I started writing in general. Um, so my musical tastes have really broadened a lot uh, over the years and so I think I've just been able to really communicate what I've been wanting to do sonically as well as in the storytelling um, with with much more efficiency Uh, and I think that that's kind of that comes across in the show um, a, a much more succinct ability to kind of bring across what I'm trying to say. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Jess McAvoy, who's performing their one-person rock musical, The Search, at the Butterfly Club as part of Midsummer. If you've not been to the Butterfly Club before, Five Carson Place in that little Collins Street, just around the corner from the Melbourne Town Hall. And the show is running from the 22nd until the 27th of January. Jess, in terms of the show itself, did you have to consciously adapt or change your songwriting style because you were writing a rock musical as opposed to more general songwriting because I guess the songs in musicals have um, sometimes often have a more interior reflective tone they advance a story they reveal a character's inner thoughts in a way that can't be said in traditional words yeah I definitely I mean some of the songs have been lifted from my back catalogue purposely um, but there is definitely there were two major main songs the opening song and kind of the culmination song towards the end that um, I wrote really late in the in the game um, and it most because I had this monologue that kind of brought everything together towards the end that just went on and on and it's like well if I can replace this in if I can replace this with a conversation between two of the characters a direct collaboration uh, of them both sort of taking turns and singing this song it'll be much more um, succinct and, and and sort of bring the story across much more easily and I, I I'd seen that um 
have you heard of Hades Town? One of the it's a it's on Broadway at the moment. It's a beautiful musical that was um, uh, Ani DeFranco actually helped uh, get it together. And I found that after seeing that show, there was some of those songs that kind of came through in the work that I was doing and um and yeah and of course because I was writing this rock musical it was like well I started watching musicals more and started actually you know researching how it's done because as much as I'm a good storyteller as a as a songwriter you're right it's a completely different um vessel to use and so there's definitely a couple songs that feel really uh true to that. Why create a rock musical as opposed to a cabaret show, for example? Because everything you've said about your, your work and the, the storytelling elements in between songs and the songs themselves also seem like they might lean more towards cabaret than a rock musical. Yeah, I think because I didn't come to it with any sort of theatre background, you know, I sort of like smashed into the medium with everything that I've done so far over the last 30 years and, and you know, I had this kind of idea from in, inside of myself that this is how it should come across. And so when I did start showing it to theatre professionals like what is this what have you done like how how are you trying to tell this story so um no it wasn't intentional I just knew that I had a story to tell that um and I had a couple of songs in there that I thought were useful and it just you know by the time it sort of had its full formation my director was like this is a one-person rock musical and I was like yes it is (laughs) yes it is so you've done a New York season off Broadway you've now brought it to Melbourne are you touring elsewhere in the country you know that's really going to depend on not this time around um you know these things are pretty expensive to put on as I always find out afterwards So it's, you know, it was a really wonderful opportunity to, to come here in this time, sort out my visa, spend some time away from winter. It's very cold in New York right now um, and, and have the, uh, the opportunity to perform it over midsummer, which is just a huge honour. And also an opportunity to share a story about uh, recovering, uh, being a recovering uh, alcoholic, uh, exploring post-traumatic stress disorder, coming out, it, a very personal kind of work from you, which will hopefully deeply resonate with the audiences who see it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think as well, just discovering that um, I'm non-binary in the last couple of years, you know, that's been a really massive thing for me. And so, you know, I was pretty nervous about bringing it to Melbourne, honestly, just from, you know, what it was like to leave here as a queer um, back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, yeah, it just it's 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 really nice to be able to bring this back to this wonderful audience that is still hanging around that kind of knows who I am and and sort of show where I've come to with um, my journey around all of the things that have challenged me and have, have grown me as a person. Jess McAvoy's The Search is on at the Butterfly Club in Melbourne as part of Midsummer 2024. Uh, the dates are from the 22nd of January until the 27th of January. Uh, you can go to thebutterflyclub.com for more details and to book tickets to The Search. Jess McAvoy, it's been an absolute pleasure. What a lovely pleasure to speak to you, Richard. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. 
We just heard a track there from local artist Pikelet from their album Calluses. The track that we heard was called Forward Motion. It seemed like an appropriate track to play before we start to have a conversation about a new contemporary dance work being staged at Dance House. There was a performance last night and there's another performance tonight. The production is called Hope Hunt and the Ascension into Lazarus. Uh, and it begins with my guest, Sandrine Lescarant, uh, Stumbling out of the boot of a car, I'm told. Yes, exactly. Which is an unusual way to begin a dance production. <laughs> I would hope that you're not claustrophobic. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be getting into a car boot in the first place. Yeah. Now, Sandrine, you're uh, a French dancer. I, I know you've got uh, a bit of a background in street dance, for yep. example. Yep. Um, but this work that you're performing, rather than choreographing it yourself. It's choreographed by the Northern Irish uh, kind of dance maker Una Doherty, yes. who's now based in France. Exactly. How did you come about to be dancing in, in this iteration of the work? Uh, so uh, I met Una during an audition uh, in, in, in Paris. And uh, yeah, it was really... Uh, um, I was... I was amazed by the work, by the way she was uh, giving everything uh, on stage, the special eye she has uh, uh, about the use that we are talking about in the piece. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's the, the way I, I met her. Yeah. Now, the, the kind of the sort of young people that this work is focused on. Um, in the UK, they might be called chavs or neds. Um, can you give us an explanation of what kind of youth culture we're talking about for people who don't know those words? Mm. So when I met Una and I dig into the, um, the piece, I really recognised myself when I was young. And uh, because I'm from the suburbs of Paris, and I was like, how, how is it possible that all these references from Belfast are so linked to what I was living back in the time and what a lot of you young people are still living? Um, but yeah, to talk about it, I can, I can only talk about me and the community I know. Um, I think... Um, what we see on TV or in, on the media in general, it's a kind of aggressive, rebellious use, you know, from the suburbs. Um, but I do see um, a use uh, with a lack of um, good words, you know, a lack and a big struggles like uh, social, economical, psychological, psychologically also um, big big struggles like as an adult when we are young and that that bring you to a point where you are um, yeah you're just like getting angry about the situations now I've watched quite a bit of uh, I guess uh, 
Irish, Northern Irish, British TV. And mm. so I'm familiar with the, the look of, of a Ned or a Chav. So we're talking tracksuits, for example. Yes. Uh, if uh, we're talking about Belfast specifically, they're probably drinking Buckfast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as you say, yeah, this is a, a work that is exploring masculinity, identity, class, aggression. What I find fascinating is that uh, you're a female-identifying performer dancing in a work that is about angry, disenfranchised young men. Mm. What's it like to embody masculinity in dance in that way? Yeah, mm, same. I think I was, uh, I don't know how we say in English, but I was a uh, 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 missed boy. I don't know how we say We say it like that, like when you're a girl, but you don't know about your femininity when you're young and you just want to act like the big brothers. <laughs> uh, a tomboy. Yeah, well. exactly. So that's what I was. So, and and also, I think um, uh, it feels like uh, I don't know. I feel like a big big up to all my bros and sis. You know, <laughs> it's more like a big yeah, a big up to them, a big up to also the community because. Uh, I mean, back in the suburbs, we also have uh, people who are really creative, and I wanted to have a big up on them. For example, we have one reference in the in the show, which is from uh, Mathieu Kassovitz's movie, La Haine. And this is like for us, like really uh, um, uh, crucial in our identity and uh, talking about the suburbs for real, you know, and all the consideration behind. But yeah, a sense of pride of the the, the styles and and the the link between people uh the complicity between people uh it feels also yeah just a refresh from my from my use and from the use of many of many people i know yeah mm. now you've done a a short season of hope hunt and the ascension into lazarus in sydney already as yes. part of sydney festival mm-hmm. how did that go it was nice. Uh, to be honest, I, r- I arrived in the show thinking after holidays, thinking, wow, five shows in a row, it's going to be tough. <laughs> but finally, it went really well. Uh, everything was so on point with the organization. That's also like really, okay, we can breathe. And, um, and it was quite fancy because it was in a dance school. <laughs> so uh, it's not common. Uh, we're used to play more inside the theaters or or outside the theaters also, and uh, but it gives a sense of uh, I, I didn't have to, for example, to hide <laughs> because all the dancers were around. So yeah, and it was uh, nice. Remembers I was really touched by the audience feedbacks that they really can taste a sense of. Uh, hope <laughs> in the peace that's the yeah that's the the point i guess yeah, yeah. now uh the work itself um i think una first performed it herself didn't exactly she? with neil brown yeah back, back in, in 2016 time. exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah um talk to us about having to take over from the creator of a work mm. to perform her work under her direction. Mm-hmm. It must be quite um, an exacting and challenging process to to recreate something with the original artist watching on. Yeah. 
I think I couldn't make it if I have no um, experience. I mean, uh, if my my personal life was not linked to the show, uh, that was really, uh, to me, it felt like really, um, it was not easy, but it catched me directly. Yeah. Uh, and Una is so um, amazing. She really know how to um, d- discern people. She feel the people, and and so her way of of teaching me the show was really uh, subtle. Uh, she she could give like really small imaginary details that that helps me to build my character, and. Um, and yeah, that, that was really uh, uh, enjoyful to do it. And also all the conversations we had uh, together about what is our in our guts, you know, that, that use, uh, which is like uh, sometimes craving. So, yeah. Uh, and and then she, she working with her is also like receiving a lot of... Uh, love, support, and trust. So she really trusting uh, my own interpretation mm. through the show. So that's why it's uh, she's she's accepting that it's, you know, like, uh, um, I don't know how we say in English, but poreux, you know, like uh, it could be malleable. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, yeah, and that's, that's really grand, I think. The fact that, as you say, you bring your own lived experience mm-hmm. to the work of growing up in the suburbs of, of Paris and also uh, your background in street dance mm-hmm. informs the work. But mm-hmm. the, the the choreography in the piece itself blends both street dance and more uh, traditional contemporary dance yes. kind of language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's more from a contemporary background and I'm more from the hip-hop uh, culture. Uh, but... Um, I was working with different choreographers, and as soon as my hip hop came on on stage, I had to uh, uh, open it to the space, you know, and so find a new way of moving. And also, I I was still, I think, from the beginning, really hybrid in my style, so that could fit together. Of course, I don't have like the 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 good. Uh, <laughs> The good shape as a you know ballet dancer or contemporary it's not the same lines, but the this specific word is so in about um the character the interpretation there's a lot of words there's a lot of uh um yeah how do you say that like it's about expressions a lot the body expression but also uh the face and yeah, the, the the message behind. So that's where we could meet, I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we said at the start of our conversation, Sandrine, you begin the work by tumbling out of the boot of mm-hmm. a car. Yes. Um, and so the audience begin the show outside on the street. Mm-hmm. So literally being part of a street culture and then you lead them into the, the performance venue. Yes. Yeah. And there's also a driver who is part of the show. Exactly. I wanted to speak about the the team also, you know, because uh, with me I have uh, Maxime Fraisse, which is the driver. And um, I don't want to say too much about the show, but his character is also really like... Uh, 
essential. And um, and Lisa Embari, um, which is uh, who is sorry, um, the one who cares about the light and the sounds, and uh, and yeah, both of uh, the three of us, we are really like serving this show, and uh, and. C- Considering every spaces, for example, here in Melbourne, it was quite tough because there is not a, a big space in front of the theater to gather people. So we, we did it in the small la- lane, uh, just close to the theater. And it was so one of my best show yesterday, I think, because I could feel the people that close, you know, like, and yeah, it gave me goosebumps and a lot of energy to see that they were, yeah, catching the thing. Hope Hunt and the Ascension into Lazarus is on tonight at Dance House. It's the second and final performance of its short Melbourne season. If you've not been to Dance House before, located at 150 Princes Street in Carlton North, and you can find out more details at dancehouse.com.au. The production we're talking about is called Hope Hunt and the Ascension into Lazarus. Uh, my guest is Sandrine uh, Lescoron. Uh, and in terms of the, uh, the, the audience response, you said last night, because it's so intimate in the mm. lane way that you felt it was one of your best performances, you said the, the audience reaction in Sydney was very positive and very strong. Yes. What was the audience's reaction last night to this work performed by a French dancer about mm. Northern Irish Neds? Mm. I think the word which came back every time is, it's moving. And and to me, you know, this piece is also... It's been four years now that I'm touring it, and it has been a long and beautiful trip um, because this... I, I also embody uh, many characters in this show uh, to talk about the streets and the violences in general and the hope... Uh, we as a team um, have for the future, but also the ascension to Lazarus is to me like a prayer, and I could feel a, uh, a sense of uh, communion. That's beautiful. Yeah. Hope Hunt and the Ascension into Lazarus, performed by Sandrine Lescoron and uh, the rest of the team, and choreographed by Una Doherty. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. My next guest is a director who is well known for incorporating live music into his work. Um, so I'm intrigued to see how he's going to work it into The Inheritance, which is a has, is a, an epic piece of theatre. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by director Kitan uh, Petovsky. Good, got that right. Um, Kitan, welcome to Triple R for starters. Thanks for having me, Richard. Absolute pleasure. And let's talk about this particularly epic work, The Inheritance. Mm-hmm. So it's not one but two plays, um, stretching, what, all up over seven hours. Yeah, uh, including intervals, it, it can stretch to over seven hours. Um, but we, we've, uh, 
controversially cut one interval from our um, version, and uh, it's, it's just going to be over six and a half hours of, um, of uh, two two plays are uh, performed in two parts. Yeah. Now. People are very comfortable these days binge-watching shows. Yeah. Uh, so they could sit down and watch, I don't know, all eight episodes of, of something over a day. Is watching theatre in a similar way more demanding? Uh, I don't think we've seen enough or binge-watched enough theatre to, um, to be able to speak to that, really. But uh, I was watching the first preview of uh, The Inheritance last night with our first audience. And it was quite incredible to sit in the room with, I think we had about 80 patrons last night, and they were all just so quiet and engaging and um, laughed at all the moments that um, we thought they would, so that that was great. Um, and then we heard some sniffles, and it was just like, uh, it was a really special experience to sit in a, in a room in an in a intimate theatre with uh, an with strangers for just over three hours and experience uh, such an epic story together. Um, and I don't think we have done that enough. So um, hopefully there will be more binge-watching theatre um, to come. It's certainly something that feels apt at festival time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Inheritance is being staged as part of Midsummer Festival, for example. And uh, I've been to festivals interstate, for example, where if you said to me normally, would you like to come to see eight hours of Shakespeare <laughs> performed in Dutch, I would run in the opposite direction. But during a festival... The opportunity to uh, to embark on such a deep dive, such a voyage of storytelling and compassion and emotion and drama, it, it really feels as, as if festivals encourage audiences to explore and experience work like that. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's really rare for us to experience plays of this um, this nature and of this length. And there is something quite incredible of just of purely watching uh, actors. I've got an amazing ensemble of thirteen actors that are working every second of the play. Most of them don't ever leave the stage, and that is um, on its own just um, a really special experience. So, uh, I think um, festivals do offer these uh, lengthier plays, but uh, I think. Um, Oh, I don't know what I think. I, I think they should happen more often outside of festivals as well. Yeah. Now, let's talk about The Inheritance, which uh, The Guardian described as a, a cross between Angels in America and Howard's End. Yeah. Um, with, it's a, a piece of theatre about memory, mm-hmm. about honouring the past, about uh, the aftermath of the AIDS crisis and um, making sure that contemporary queer generations don't lose the stories of their elders and of the past. What was it about those kind of themes that attracted you to the work? Yes. Uh, having my, my first read of the play, I, I was struck by how much I didn't know about queer history. And I was uh, I felt guilty and disappointed and quite upset with myself not, um, not having done my research. And then I, I reflected on why that was, and it's, it's because it, it hasn't been taught. It's not part of our curriculum in, in schools. Um, you, you probably can find a degree in queer studies, I guess, at some university institutions these days, but not when I was growing up. And it made me realise how, how much of our queer history has been lost, forgotten, or, or wiped, wiped out completely. Um, and a lot of a lot of these stories were, were lost uh, with the men that died um, because of the uh, HIV/AIDS uh, crisis. And I think that's um, so unfortunate that those stories haven't been passed on. So what the inheritance does is um, it really highlights the importance of how important of how 
us, the younger generation, I'm not that young myself anymore, um, we should really listen and look up to um, to our elders, our queer elders, ask them about their lives, ask them about the stories, because my God, have they got stories to share. And uh, the inheritance just scratches that surface with, uh, with the, the story of um, the characters of uh, Walter and Henry Wilcox and, and uh, a couple in their 60s, 70s who um, have an amazing love story. And they are survivors from the, from the 80s. They, they um, were one of the lucky ones. And they were lucky because they were privileged. And uh, the, the play also dealt, uh, looks at the, the privilege of, of class and uh, how, how if you've got money, if you've got um, a, a getaway home uh, out at the meadows, how you can escape the chaos that was happening in New York City in the 80s. So I think um, for all of us, and not myself, but I think for the cast and the creative team, we've, we've gone on a journey of, I feel like I've got a master's in queer history now, just having, done, having to do so much research. And I, we still have a lot more that we haven't, um, haven't learned. But it, it's really untapped something. Um, I'm, I'm really passionate to keep keep um, keep looking into what what um, what we've missed over the past fifty or so years. Yeah, it's. I've recently gone on a deep dive into American queer history from even earlier, uh, and discovering. I, I never until recently I never knew about the pansy craze, for example, which I don't know if you've heard about. And it, again, it's a sign of the way that. Um, uh, Everybody has a habit of forgetting things, and mm. but the repre- the active repression of queer history uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, for example, meant that we can, most of us have never even heard of the fact that in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, pansies or fairies were the hottest performers on Broadway yeah. and and the the highest earning performers, and there were kind of uh, gay and lesbian bars opening across America and then uh, kind of by the time we get to the 30s we get uh, uh, government repression then we get the lavender scare in the 50s and so forth so it's so important to make sure that history is told and is shared and it feels like theatre is a great medium to do that because it's not a documentary it's drama Oh my God! It is drama. There are so many. Um, every I think uh, act has a, a cliffhanger moment. There are so many twists that um, you don't see coming, and it, it's one of those stories that you just want to know what happens next. And it, it, I, I do. That's why I use the word binge watching. You just want to get to the next episode. Just something that you said about um, community, and there is there's a beautiful scene in the play where um, the, the young uh, gay men that uh, co-author the, the story, they share the, the telling of the story uh, through narration, they speak about um, the loss of a ho- a ho- so many queer and iconic gay nightclubs in New York. And I'm thinking about uh, clubs that have closed down in Melbourne recently as well, where, where there were uh, places where um, our community used to meet and we used to exchange stories and we used to hang out in, in person, and how that's now been replaced by apps like Grindr, and how we, uh, we have lost um, this meaningful person-to-person uh, connection. And a lot of us feel isolated and lonely, and that is a result of... Um, against society moving on, but everything has become um, electronic and how um, how it's important for us to reconnect. And I have found the whole experience of um, hanging out with uh, my cast of, of queer queer uh, actors really cathartic and it's made me realise, oh, my God, I miss, I miss hanging out um, and having these chats with you in person because I haven't, I haven't done that in a long, long time. 
Yeah. Now, the play itself is uh, written by the US playwright Matthew Lopez. Um, have you been in contact with him to, to discuss the play at all, or is, he, is it just a case of getting the rights and, uh, and he steps back and doesn't, doesn't engage? Well, Matthew Lopez is a very busy and in demand um, a writer at the moment. Uh, he's, he's, he's working on, on a lot, but uh, I wish I've had more opportunities to speak to him. He wrote a lovely email um, for us, uh, our cast and crew, uh, ahead of our first preview yesterday, um, sharing some wisdom uh, with us from previous seasons of The Inheritance uh, on the West End on Broadway, and just a few tips on um, what, what to do and what to um, what to avoid doing as well. And one of them was uh, please avoid breaking up with your uh, partner at the time of performing the show, because it's I think a few, you know, like working on the show makes you question your life and where you're at and what what's important to, to us as gay men. And I think um, it is, it's quite scary reevaluating all your decisions up until now and going, is this what I want? Is this what I want to do? Um, so a few of us have had a, a bit of a, uh, not a life crisis, but going, yeah, um, maybe it's time for, for some change. But Matthew's like, do not break up. That's That was one of his tips. I love that. <laughs> now, a devil's advocate question. Do we really need more stories about middle-class white gay men? Uh, well... Or even upper-class white gay men? I think we need more stories about gay men full stop. So I, I think the class, yes, there is a representation of um, classes discussed throughout the play, and it's not just upper-class. It's uh, we, we, uh, They discuss um, what... What it means, okay. So I, I don't want to reveal any of the um, of the plot, but uh, the difference between um, someone who has is unwell, for example, and if if they are from an upper class, they get treatment asap. They get um, to go to the best doctors, the best hospital. They and in America, if you don't have health insurance, you're pretty much you're screwed. Um, compared to someone who has no money and has nowhere to go and ca- cannot afford uh, medicine, for example. So um, it it. It explores class from from all angles, and I think it's uh, it's something that I, I think it's important that we we still tell gay stories, um, no matter what class they are, because there's just not enough of them at the moment. Yeah. Now, Kitan, as I said at the start of the interview, you're well known for incorporating live music into your into your works. Yeah. Um, are you including that aspect of uh, in the inheritance, or is this a chance to? branch off and do something slightly different? Oh, Richard, I wish... Or is that a spoiler? I wish, no, no, it's not a spoiler. I can say it now. Um, there will be no live music, um, unfortunately. Look, if we had if we had a massive budget, oh, my goodness, I would have a live orchestra underscore the whole play. Imagine that. But no, we, this is very much... An, it's, it's such an intimate setting, and the play and the storytelling are so clear that it doesn't really require a lot of... Um, a, a lot of design, basically. And uh, I'm so... Uh, lucky to have uh, brought back together my creative team from um, previous shows. So the Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, one Which of them. Which I adored. Thank you. So I've got Rachel Lewenden, who's um, doing composition and sound design for The Inheritance. I've got Bethany J. Fellows doing set and costumes. Oh, oh my God, it's such a big play for Bethany to have um, have created. She's done an amazing job. And I've got the wonderful Katie Svetkittis, who has done the lighting design for this one. And... Uh, Lighting is so important because scenes just shift on a dime and lights are everything in the show. So I'm very, very happy to have them on the board. And I'm guessing those lighting shifts are also accompanying shifts in time and place. Yes. So the the, the play begins in 2016 and then it moves through um, uh, about three years. We cover uh, multiple seasons. Uh, uh, the, there is an election that happens in America. There's the, um, again, I don't want to reveal too much, but we shift in time and place rapidly and uh, we even go into the future. So, yeah. 
We're speaking about the production The Inheritance at 45 Downstairs, um, which is which previewed last night and is running through until the 11th of February. You can find out more details at 45downstairs.com. But Kitan, this is, as we've said, a, it's a major work of theatre. Um, and it strikes me that it's the kind of play that in Australia is all too often only staged by independent companies. Because if you see a main stage production, most casts are two, three, maybe six people if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's rare to get works of scale on the Australian stage. So what pressure does that place on you and your cast and the creative team uh, to, to stage this work independently as opposed to with the, the budget that a Sydney Theatre Company production might have? Uh Immense pressure. I, I'll, I'll be honest. We we had six weeks to rehearse six hours of a, a, a show, and um, it, it's 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 really um, at times you you question why why do we do this to ourselves? But then you know again sitting with an audience last night, you, it all it all comes together, and you go that that's why because it it, it moves people there and means something, um, and that that shared feeling in the room, like, yeah, is, is is everything for me. Um, yeah, it's 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 a massive play, and I I, I hope that um, players of this scale do get picked up by main stage companies because independent uh, independent artists like myself um, work work our butts off to get work like this up. And I'm so 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 proud of what we've achieved. But um, I'll, 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 I won't lie; it's been it's been a challenging time, and we've all worked around the clock. The last uh, week, in particular, in production, has been grueling. And it's it's just because of um, lack of lack of money and resources, and that's independent theatre for you. Yeah, well, um, when I had uh, Cameron Lukey, the artistic director of Forty Five Downstairs, on the show last year, he said that he'd seen a, the the production overseas, and was genuinely surprised that it hadn't been staged by and that no other major company in Australia had snapped up the rights. So, uh, the fact that again, uh, the opportunity to do something that is so ambitious mm-hmm. um, is, I think, a hallmark of independent theatre in some ways. Absolutely. I think that's what makes um, Melbourne and, you know, what we do here in theatre um, so so unique. And uh, where else would you get to see this play in Australia? Um, you, we, this is the Australian premiere of The Inheritance. And uh, what a privilege and an honour for me to be directing this, this version, my version of the play. And it's a play that talks about the fact that we need to balance respect for the dead with a love of living and of life. I love that quote, yes. That's, yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, that's, again, uh, from The Guardian. So uh, I didn't just come up with that in the spot. I'm cheating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, Kitan, in terms of people seeing the play, mm-hmm. so it's alternate nights during the week. Correct. And then on a weekend, you can see both plays on the same day. Yes, so during the weekdays, including Saturdays, um, yeah, Tuesday to Saturday, we have alternating nights, so you can see part one. So, for example, last night we previewed part one, and tonight the same crowd will come and see part two. On a Sunday, however, you get to see both part one and two on the same day. So part one begins at two o'clock, and then you have a dinner break in between the parts, and then you come back at seven for the second part. I will say, I think there are only a handful of tickets left for those Sunday shows. Um, they are, they've just sold yeah they've sold incredibly well so i would urge you to go and book if if you want to see both parts on the same day um get in today because they're they're 
pretty much sold out. Okay. So to book, jump online, 45downstairs.com to see The Inheritance, uh, which is on until the 11th of February. Uh, and just a note in terms of accessibility, 45 Downstairs is wheelchair accessible via a lift, but uh, you need to let the venue know at least 24 hours prior to attending. Uh, and if you're going on the weekend, that means by 5pm on a Friday to let them organise the lift so you can have access to the venue. Otherwise, you've got a couple of flights of stairs to navigate downstairs to the kind of uh, the acoustically beautiful, I have to say. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. And it's a great workout if you, you know, if you are able to go up and down those stairs. I've, I feel like I've got great thighs now, having <laughs> spent about two weeks in that venue. Who needs to go to the gym? <laughs> well, I haven't. I haven't had the time. I mean, this is my workout. It's those stairs. <laughs> uh, so uh, the inheritance at 45 downstairs, uh, as I said, uh, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, 45 downstairs.com. Uh, Opening officially this this Sunday with the double the, the marathon. So here we go. Well, triggers for that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Kitan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 